him. It's been great already to be here. I love hearing you sing. I love these Sunday mornings coming to remember the resurrection, remember that we believe the gospel is true, uh, and we stake our lives and really our whole existence on this reality. As you uh, f- pull your Bibles out, you can be finding the book of Revelation. It's the first time I've ever actually preached a full sermon from the book of Revelation. So we will have fun with this one. Revelation 21, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. As you're finding that, just wanted to make a couple of notes for you, administrative notes for you. One, we have been experimenting a little bit with a new schedule, getting our service started. Some of you may have noticed that. Um, not doing the announcements at the beginning, but just starting with uh, music. That's felt good to us, and so we're going to continue uh, to do that. So just so you note that. Also wanted to note, because we're not taking as much time with announcements, I'm going to make an announcement about not doing announcements. All right, so follow along with that. So I do send out emails weekly. So there's an email that goes out generally every Tuesday morning and then one that goes out on Friday afternoon, evening. Um, We do highlight everything going on in the life of the church and we try to keep our website up to date. We've got some changes coming in store for that as well. So if you're not receiving those emails, uh, you may want to get on that list. You can grab one of those cards that's on the chair back just in front of you and you can fill that out and indicate that you would like to receive weekly emails from us and we will add you to the list. Uh, But most of our information is going to be on there. So we won't be doing that quite as much on Sunday mornings. If you're visiting here with us, we're so glad that you're here. You can let us know that you're here by one of those cards. If you'd like to, you may want to hear what I have to say before you fill out one of those cards and give it to us if it's your first time here today. And we're also also going to be having a lunch uh, where we'll talk a little bit about the church this afternoon and what we do, what does it mean to be a member at Sunrise um, Doctrine, things like that. So that will be immediately following the service. Even if you're here and you didn't register for that and you'd like to stay and attend, we would love to have you. We always buffer our numbers a little bit. So if you are interested in that, you can stay right after the service. Okay, with all of that, let's go to Revelation 21 and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4 today. You know, as a kid, I had this reoccurring thought, and I don't think I ever shared this with anyone as a child, and I don't know that I've ever shared it with anyone even since then. I haven't necessarily thought much about this for quite a while, but it did come to mind as I was studying this topic of what is the eternal state, what are we headed to, what is heaven like. I remember hearing statements as a kid about heaven is going to be this place where we just get to worship Jesus 24 hours a day. And I will confess to you that as a kid, my narrow definition of what it meant to worship Jesus meant choir robes, hymnals, harps, handbells. Am I ringing a bell? No pun intended with some of you. That was your upbringing as well. And I still, in my mind, even when I talk about this, I think about the First Baptist Church that we were in in Gadsden, Alabama. I think about the hardwood. I think about the balcony. I think about the choir and the robes and the hymnals. And I'm a rambunctious little kid, lots of energy, love the outdoors. And I remember having this thought over and over again, that doesn't sound awesome to me. And then I would feel this sense of guilt because I'm told you're supposed to be really excited about going to heaven. And as a kid, I'm thinking, I don't want to be in the choir. Like, I was forced to do this. Some of you can identify with that as well. Children's choir, youth choir. Um, It quickly became apparent music wasn't necessarily my thing as far as singing and playing instruments. But it was just kind of what you did. And 
I am, well, let me just footnote that. I'm so grateful for musicians. I've told people in my next life, that isn't, that's not real. Um, I would want to be a musician. I love music. I've grown it, uh, to appreciate that over the years. But I, I didn't have any interests as a kid. And so I'm told that you're going to spend eternity worshiping Jesus. And I just had a terrible image of what that was actually like. And so as a child, I wasn't all that excited about heaven, the eternal state. And I don't know if any of you resonate with that. And I think there's two things maybe going on here. I think one, it's a very narrow understanding of what it means to worship the Lord. I think many of us, worship is shorthand for the music, right? So somebody asks you, how was worship today? Many of us think in terms of the music. It's just contemporary. That's sort of how we use the term. So I had a very narrow understanding of what it means to worship And then I also had really maybe a misunderstanding of the nature of heaven. And I think that's what I really want to get into here today. What I became to understand and came to have a more, uh, maybe built out a more robust, more biblical understanding of what happens next, then once we get there, it is absolutely thrilling what happens and what we're headed towards. And the Bible is clear on many of these things. Now, let me just be clear as we step into the book of Revelation. There's obviously a lot of mystery around the book of Revelation. And we'll discuss that in different approaches to the book of Revelation. But I think the end of the book is pretty clear on what happens next. What we have is this world with a massive upgrade. And what I'm going to make the argument that is going to happen and we're in the midst of is there's going to be an Eden 2.0. All right? And so I'll get there in just a moment. So let me, for the sake of maybe if you haven't been with us or maybe you missed a week, uh, we are in the midst of a four-week series here, and I have limited myself to four weeks on this, although there's much, much more that we could say. And we're looking at the basic issues of worldview. And I've made the case that you can really outline the Bible by these four big questions. And we'll see how that works in just a moment. Question number one, where did I come from? I think it's a question everybody's asking. I think it's a question everybody wants to know. Where did I come from? Have you noticed how many origin stories are coming out with movies now? They go back and tell the the prequel, the Star Wars type of thing. All of the major studios are doing this now. It's a question of existence. Where did I come from? Because that, obviously, we derive our meaning and existence and purpose, all those things from this fundamental question. The biblical answer is creation, Genesis 1 and 2. It's not just Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 1 and 2 very specifically. What's wrong with the world? The biblical answer to that is there's this thing called the fall. In theological terms, that's what we call it. Genesis 3 happened to the world. That is what is ultimately wrong with the world. And so what's going to fix it? Well, what's going to fix it is redemption in Christ. Sin is the problem. The cross is the answer, ultimately. Now, there are temporal things that we can work on and fix, and there are a lot of side issues related to this, but in the biggest possible sense, what we really, really have to have and need is forgiveness of our sins. That's fundamental, and that's what we talk about all the time here at this church. And then where are we headed? And the biblical answer for that is restoration. We are headed for a renewed place with a renewed people around centered around our Savior, Jesus Christ. I mentioned last week that redemption 
is certainly an individual reality, you must be redeemed as an individual. You must place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as an individual. There are also some verses, and I made allusion to this last week. I want to explore that just for a moment with you here today. There's also a sense in which there's more going on than individual redemption, certainly not less, but there's more going on than just the individual being redeemed. Here's what I mean. Colossians 1.20, and through him, that is, of course, Christ, to reconcile to himself all things. That's a pretty sweeping statement. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's more going on than only individual redemption, but it's certainly not less. Paul says something very similar in his letter to the Romans, that the creation itself, the created order will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's this intermingling here in Romans 8 between the redemption that individual believers in Jesus Christ who are justified by Christ, by his grace, and then this cosmic idea that the earth is being renewed as well. Now that's maybe a little bit unfamiliar waters for some of us because we maybe don't think like this quite as much. But I think it's absolutely there. And I think Revelation 21 22 is going to help us see this. So I gave you an assignment last week. I kind of want to ask for a show of hands to see who did the assignment if you were here last week. I, I appreciate that. We have one at least. Um, thank you. I will update your chart. <laughs> I asked you to do this read Genesis 1 and 2. And then skip the rest and go straight to Revelation 21, 22. And what you see is a story that makes complete sense. You start with creation, you start with a garden, you end with a city. You have people worshiping the Lord. You have people worshiping the Lord. You have this place where a tree, this peculiar tree, actually two trees there in the garden. You have this, these trees that are featured and then you have this tree that's bearing fruit and giving fruit in its season really interesting. And we'll talk about those comparisons a little bit more. So as we jump into Revelation, I recognize that many people have different views of Revelation. Fortunately for us, at least here this morning, most of what we're going to look at in Revelation 21 and 22, outside of a few folks, it's really not disputed as to when this part is happening. Now, if you jump into the middle of Revelation, we could have all sorts of interesting conversations And maybe we will one day. They're worth having. But most agree on the big picture that this is speaking to a future reality where redeemed humanity is with the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? That's what we're talking about. Revelation, whenever I go to the book of Revelation, I always think about this G.K. Chesterton quote just because it makes me laugh. And I like his hat. And though St. John, speaking of John the Apostle who wrote Revelation, saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. (laughs) I think that's probably true when we get to Revelation. So what do we see in Revelation? We'll look at this in four points, and I will confess that we're not actually going to get to number four um, because we're going to run out of time. So... Four points, this new and improved restoration. We see a restored place, restored communion, restored people, restored holiness. Let's look at this restored place. 
All right, I've said this a couple of times and I've made allusions to this. I wanna go through some detail as to why I think you can draw a straight line between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. Now, what we're going to do, I'll show you a series of charts here that shows correspondence between the verses in in Genesis and then in Revelation. So, this may be a little bit painstaking for some, but hang in there with me. It won't last too long. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we move to Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Genesis 1.16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. So you have this creation of the elements, the sun, and you have the greater light and the lesser light. There's reference to a light, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Why? For the light of the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. So you have a renewing of the light source in Revelation. Interesting. Genesis 3.10. The Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The dwelling place of God is with man. So you have God is with man, and then again, God is dwelling with man. Uh, Genesis 2.9. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Now, this one's really interesting. Just track with me here for a moment. This fruit, we are completely accustomed to going to the store and getting whatever fruit whenever you want, right? If you want strawberries and it's the November, you can go find a strawberry. You may pay a little more, but we figured out this thing, Northern Hemisphere, Southern Hemisphere, we ship stuff from all over the place. The idea that a, a tree, a fruit tree, would bear fruit 12 months out of the year, that's, you can't do that. That's not how seasons work. And so you see the image and the picture that's being created here is this, it's not just bearing fruit, it's bearing this abundant fruit all the time. And so it's this picture of abundance, of a multiplication of what's happening. 2.10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So there's reference to a river. 22.2, the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Interesting. There's a water source. There's food. 3.17, this is in the midst of the curse. So this is after the fall. The cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. It's not that the earth is not going to deliver its goods for you anymore. It's just going to get very difficult. 22.3, no longer will there be anything accursed. So you see, the curse is reversed. It's undone. And there's a lot of threads that we could pull on that one. 3.22, this is when Adam and Eve are being cast out of the garden. You can't be in the garden anymore because you're not holy and you can't have this tree of life anymore because they've sinned. Lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. We talked about that when we looked at the fall. So that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. You see, the access to the tree is restored. Eat freely. It's yours now. It's very intentional, the way this is set up. He drove out the man 
and at the east of the Garden of Eden. So he's put out of God's place, the Garden of Eden. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. So they will be in communion again with him, coming into the city. 2, 11, and 12. This one's just a little bit of an oddity, but interesting. The gold of that land is good. Um, it's interesting that God says there's gold there. And I think it's really a reference to, hey, use that for something. Make things, make some jewelry and, you know, eventually electronics and use them in your little connectors and whatever else you can do with it. It's yours. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. And then I think what we have is this case that Eden was the original temple. It was the dwelling place of God with man. It's not explicitly said, but I think there's many, many lines of reasoning to say that. Then I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The whole place. What is a temple? It's the place where God meets with his people. And so now the whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is now the temple of God. And we live in this place, and we do things in this place. It's an amazing reality. Only in Eden and the New Jerusalem do humans communicate directly face-to-face with God. Interesting point that Des Alexander made. So, this new place, a restored earth, is what we see. Let's read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice of the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. There is a new place that is being created. I'd initially planned on doing, as I mentioned a moment ago, sort of an overview of chapters 21 and 22. As I dug a little bit into that, I thought, you know, I think I'll just do chapter 21. As I dug into that a little bit, I said, I think I'll do verses one through eight. And then we settled on one through four, and we're gonna spend most of our time in verses one and two. So this is what happens. 20 years or so plus years of teaching the Bible and I'm still a chronic over-preparer. So here we are again this morning. So we wanna dive into this and perhaps we'll have another opportunity in the future to come back and pick up the rest of this study because it's so fascinating. The book of Revelation, as I mentioned, it's a difficult book. And it's a difficult book partly because the book is standing on the foundation of the Old Testament. And there are so many allusions to the Old Testament. One resource I was looking at, I pulled this stat, I thought it was really interesting. There are 404 verses in Revelation and approximately 800 Old Testament allusions. That's what makes it a little bit tricky sometimes to get into because it's just so rich and full. Even this little verse here, verse one, 
where he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There are at least six cross-references that you could dig up um, related to this verse where similar language is used, similar allusions. So that's why we, we have, that's why it's just a, it's a book that takes a lot of care uh, for us to work through and think through. Isaiah 65 and 66 particularly underlie this and the language is very obvious allusion back to Isaiah the prophet. So it's all over the place. Now let's look at what is going on here. So we have a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Now, first thing we have to deal with is new in what sense? Does it mean new as if everything is fundamentally new? The matter of this planet is completely decimated and there's just a new thing that's dropped in into its place. I don't think that is the sense of new. I think it's more like the resurrection of the body, which we'll talk about a little bit later, where God renews and he makes new. We use this term in a similar way. A few years ago, my wife and I, we redid our kitchen, and uh, we, at one point, we pulled everything off the wall, everything off the floor, pulled up all the floor, and it looked like judgment had come uh, in our kitchen for a while. And once we finally got it all put back together, you could say, we have a new kitchen. All right, well, it's, is it, is that true? It's like, well, yes, it's new, but it's also, we could equally say it's renewed, right? It's a renewed place. And so I think that is the concept and idea, and there's a lot of different reasons for saying that, but I think that's what we're talking about. This renewed place, this earth is renewed. It's revamped after Jesus comes back and sets up his eternal state, this eternal place, heaven, as we properly say. And it says that the earth had passed away, and then it says the sea was no more. Now, what in the world does that mean? Where did the sea go, and why don't we have the sea anymore? Whenever you're doing Bible interpretation, you have to try to make sure, check your preferences at the door when you're doing Bible interpretation, right? What you hope to be true, you have to, you have to be aware of that as yourself, as a Bible interpreter. And so I have to admit, as a fisherman, I come to this and I think, I hope I can catch a redfish in the new heavens because it's something I really enjoy. So what does it mean? The sea was no more. That obviously can't influence how we think through this. It could be. It could be symbolic, sort of a more at some level, and I'll explain that in just a moment. Or it could literally mean that the sea is no more. Um, One commentator said about three quarters of the earth is currently covered by the sea. That would open up a lot of habitable ground for humans to live in. Perhaps, perhaps, or it could be a little bit of both of this going on. You need to understand something about the sea, though. I think when we think of sea, I was looking up just some stock photos, um, pictures of the sea, the ocean. And, you know, 90% of them are happy, right? Uh, you pull a picture of the sea, it's, you know, beach chairs, and somebody's drawn something on the sand, and, you know, somebody's sitting back, watching the sunrise, watching the sunset in California, or something like that. And it's very happy, the water's kind of calm and placid, and it just, you just kind of look at those pictures and go, ah, That's great. But then when you look at something like this, and if our Navy folks amongst us, uh, sometimes the sea turns on you, and it turns violent, and you want nothing more than getting off of the sea. And I'm sure many of you could tell much better stories than I can about being out there. 
The sea was considered by many in the Hebrew mind. It was a place of chaos. It was a place of disorder. It's a place where bad things came from, like Psalm 74, these strange creatures. It was the place of the dead. In Revelation 20, it's the origin of the beast. These, this beast rises up from Revelation, in Revelation 13 and also in Daniel 7. It was a place where the idolaters, those who were not worshiping the true lamb, but worshiping the false beast, it's where they did their trade. And so when you say the sea is no more, they thought, great. You know, here at Atlantic Beach, when you say the sea is no more, you're like, well, that's going to kill the vibe, you know, down, you know, a few blocks down. That's not exactly what they would have been thinking. And so I think there's most definitely a moral component that's being spoken of here. The sea is no more. It's a place of chaos and disorder. It's gone. There's something new that's in its place. So most definitely symbolic and could even be symbolic of the Exodus as well as Israel was delivered out of the sea. God dried up the Red Sea. God is again working on the sea to make a place for his people. Now it also notes that there's a city that comes down. Verse two, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So let's stop there. There's this city, and the city's name is Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem is significant. It was the place of God's dwelling. It was a place of the temple. And so many of our psalms and so, many, so much narrative of the Old Testament is built around Jerusalem and Jerusalem uh, getting captured or Jerusalem being liberated. Everything is about Jerusalem. It was closely associated with God and his presence and so this new place is coming down out of heaven as it's described here. But then the language gets kind of weird and the metaphors start to mix a little bit. So we have this city coming down out of heaven. This is verse two. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I know that we live in a world where marriage doesn't mean exactly what it used to mean. There's a certain flexibility now to the term marriage. But you can't marry a city, right? Like, I don't even think we're there quite yet as far as our contemporary imagination. So what is going on here? Cities don't get married or wear dresses. Well, earlier in Revelation, there's another city that's spoken about. But this city's a bad city. So you have this city, Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is presented as a bride, pure, clean, adorned for her husband, but you've got to read this in contrast to what just happened. There was another city, and this city was not a good city at all. This city is a city, Babylon. So this is, in reality, a tale of two cities. Back in 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 5, I'll read this, and then we'll look at this comparison here. This is speaking of Babylon, the bad city, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Now, this is how Babylon is described. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So you see the contrast that's being painted here. This city is being destroyed. We see that in Revelation 19 and 20. Babylon's destroyed. There's a new better city, clean, 
pure city, place of God's dwelling. You see the contrast. It's really the classic good versus evil in its final, final stages here. So, Revelation 17, 8, and the woman that you saw is the great city, and I've put in brackets, supplied the name Babylon, that has dominion over the kings of the earth. The holy city, in contrast, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the metaphors begin to mix here. There's a city, but the city is portrayed as a bride, just like this bad city is portrayed as a wicked prostitute carrying out abominations. So that's the clear contrast here. There's a new place. It's a renewed place. It's not Babylon. Babylon has been the archetype enemy all the way back to the Tower of Babel, all the way back, finally defeated. That's the image. That's the picture. The Lord is finally doing it, restoring humanity, restoring his place. He's also restoring his communion with his people in the process of bringing them this new place, this new city where he's going to dwell with his people. This is amazing. Look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. What an amazing statement. God is going to dwell with his people. You might remember in the Old Testament, so the first three quarters of your Bible or so, two thirds-ish, the Old Testament is centered around God dwelling with his people. That's the whole reason they came out of Egypt. God delivers his people, the slave people. He delivers them out of Egypt and says, now you have to learn how to dwell with me. So they build this thing called a tabernacle, which is a tent for God to dwell with his people. Something like this. Of course, these are artist renderings. And this happened somewhere around 1450. And it would exist until Solomon built his temple. So when you see tabernacle and temple, they're fundamentally doing the same thing. It's the place where God would meet with his people. Tabernacle was temporary. It was a tent. Temple is permanent. It's a permanent structure. But they're doing the same thing. All right, so you have this, God is gonna dwell with his people first at the tabernacle and then eventually at the temple that Solomon would build. Leviticus 26, this is during the tabernacle days. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. See, God makes a promise. If you live your lives in conformity with the covenant that I'm giving you, if you walk in obedience to me, then I will dwell among you. And of course, we know that this is not how it works out. Israel's story is a long story of them rebelling against God, God delivering them, crying out in repentance, God's deliverance, and then these cycles go on and on and on. And we see there's a progression. The tabernacle is built. Eventually, the temple is built. Then the temple gets destroyed, the temple gets rebuilt, and it gets an upgrade with Herod eventually, and the people of this day, and I believe John was writing at a later date, which means the temple's gone at this point. It's gone. It was destroyed in 70 AD. And so John's writing this most likely in the 90s. And so the temple's gone, and he's talking about a restoration of this temple, God dwelling with his people. 
Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So Ezekiel is looking forward to a day. He's prophesying in the Old Testament. Looking forward to this day. That's why I love to point this verse out right around the Christmas season. That's why this verse is so amazing. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. See, he is dwelling among us now in the person of Jesus Christ in the first century, but it's in a new way, a different way. It's not at the temple. No, not at the temple. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. He's the place where humanity meets the Lord. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Of course, Jesus lives perfect life. He dies a sinner's death. He becomes the perfect sacrifice, which we'll celebrate in just a moment here at communion. And he is the meeting place of God with man now. He ascends and we're waiting on him to return. He left and we're waiting on him to return. In the meantime, though, where does that leave us? Another fascinating verse. There's a few others like it. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now that's a rich statement, isn't it? All this, this language of God dwelling with his people, it's now happening still, but it's in a different sort of way. It's in the Spirit of God that's individually within us. We are, in a sense, our own little temples, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, and then as we come together as God's people, we are collectively the dwelling place of God. It's an amazing, amazing promise. So that's what underlies this whole passage. Now, there's gonna be a more full and a more built out way, a more direct way for God's people to dwell with their God. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God in a more full way. Then verse four, we see that we have a restored people. And we'll stop with this one in just a moment. A restored people. Look at verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Before we get to that verse specifically, I just want to make reference to the transformation that happens with us as humans. This is another thing that maybe we don't think about quite enough. I try to remind us of this from time to time. Did you know that we're getting massive body upgrades in the new heavens? And I think most of us are looking forward to that. I see some thumbs up back there. I appreciate that as well. If you woke up this morning and as you stood up, you thought, huh, what was that? <laughs> and something hurt that didn't hurt yesterday. Your muscles are sore. There's something twisted. Something isn't going right. You don't feel well. You don't have the energy you used to have. All of that points us to a future reality where we're gonna get a massive, massive upgrade and a body that's fitted for eternity. And I think, the older you get, I'm not that old yet. I feel it every now and then. I still feel all right. But you, you start to realize this body is breaking down. It's not going to last forever. And we're all painfully 
literally, painfully aware of that, aren't we? There's a lot of places we could look at this in the Bible, but we'll just stick with this one verse for now. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we're getting an upgrade. So we'll have bodies that are fitted for eternity. That's on the physical side of things. Let's see what, what is the nature of this place like. And I think a lot of times, maybe when we get into a conversation about the end times, this study is called eschatology. I think immediately we want to start drawing charts. Uh, you know, let's draw a chart. When's this going to happen? And I, and I, I appreciate, I enjoy that conversation. I actually did a lecture uh, on that not too long ago. You can find it on our website if you're interested in that. Um, not everybody made it all the way through that, um, that talk. I gave a break and like some of you bailed out on me. Just remember, those who endure to the end will be saved. So take that for what it's worth. Speaking of verses out of context. So I enjoy those conversations, but let me just, let me just say this super clear. The point of eschatology, the point of the return of Jesus is always pastoral. It's always to encourage you to endure, to keep going, to persevere. There's hope. This ends one day. There's a temporary nature to the world in which we live right now. Take hope in that. Find peace in that. Maybe you played sports growing up like I did. And I remember at the end of practice, football especially, there was always conditioning. And many of, many of the sports are the same. And I just remember this thought going through my head every now and then, this can't last forever. It can't last forever. Sometimes you would feel like this was the tribulation and like Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. But you would just remind yourself, they have to let us go. This can't last forever. It can't last forever. And I think it's that that temporal nature of the difficulty that we're going through, that's what gives us hope. And Jesus, the Lord Jesus, knew that we needed that. And that's part of the reason why he revealed this to his servant, John, so that we can look and say, okay, I can bear up under this for a little while because I know he's coming back and this is what he's gonna set up. What's it like? He's gonna wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Those are all the former things. It's passing away. It's not going to always be this way. Every time I have an opportunity to do a funeral, I generally read this verse, if the family's okay with that. You just need to know this. You need to know that one day, the pain that you experience, the pain of loss in particular, as it relates to death, the pain that you experience is not abnormal. It's perfectly normal. It should, in one sense, hurt because it's not meant to be that way. What we have is hope that one day we're gonna be in a world where it's not like that anymore. And that's the great encouragement for us. The book of Revelation ends with Revelation 20, 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And that's our prayer even here today. Just a moment, I'm gonna pray for us and David Champagne is gonna come and lead communion for us today.
And as we do that, I just want you to consider these things and consider the hope that we ultimately have in Christ. Um, Today is a day for us to look back at what Christ has done. It's also a day for us to look ahead and to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity today to come and to look at this passage of scripture. And Father, as we recognize there are some things in here that are mysterious and maybe hard for us to get our minds and and heads around, Uh, Lord, we also recognize that you have revealed your word to us and the main point is clear enough. You are coming back and our hope and trust must be in that reality. So Lord, even as we come now and celebrate communion, help it to be a time for us to celebrate, to remember what you've done and to look ahead at what you're yet to do here on this earth. We praise things in Christ's name, amen.